Welcome to Substance Free O2043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Arut, and I'm Program Director for Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community. We want kids to make healthy choices around drugs and alcohol, so we provide information to teens, parents, and the community at large about the risks associated with teen use of drugs and alcohol. With us today is Karen Beatty, who is the K-12 health coordinator in the Hingham Public Schools and also the health teacher at the high school. I want to express our appreciation for the support that we received from Principal Rick Swanson, Glenda Garland, the TVP teacher, and Katie Gallagher, the library and media teacher who are allowing us to record this episode at Hingham High School. Welcome, Karen. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to talking with you about the work that you do and the trends that you see teens in Hingham facing with regard to substance use. But first, I'd love to know a little bit more about you. How did you get into teaching and why health education in particular? I've been teaching health for about 24 years. I was originally actually a dietitian, and I was doing education on nutrition uh, in different communities, and then I found myself doing that at schools, and I thought it was really exciting and really interesting, and so I sort of moved towards being a health teacher so I can teach more than nutrition, and I eventually ended up here at the high school. So I started off with younger students in middle school, and then I, this is my 21st year at Hingham High School, so wow. I really love teaching, and I love working with students. It's been fantastic. So we know that effective prevention measures start early. What types of prevention education exists in the curriculum for younger kids, like at the elementary school age, and what does that look like? We have a little bit of uh, discussions about prevention. We don't have a health teacher at the elementary level, so there's not a health class or a health specialist that can rotate through the buildings. We have a safety officer from the police department who will uh, push into each of the buildings and does um, discussions on safety, like bus safety, Halloween safety, but there's not a a prescribed curriculum at the elementary level. Years ago there had been, um, but there's been a lot of change, and, and because that has to be done by classroom teachers and there's been an you know there's been a lot of change in administration and and staffing you know as that happens it's more difficult to have a continuation of that versus if you had a teacher a dedicated health teacher doing it so we have a little bit at the elementary level but um, not like a dedicated class or a dedicated health teacher doing prevention there is a health teacher and a health program at the middle school, though, Correct. isn't there? Yes. And what does that look like? So at the middle school, the grades 7 and 8 students have health class for one term each year. And then we also have a D.A.R.E. officer, Officer Ramsey, who does the D.A.R.E. program in grade 6, and so uh, which amounts to about a term worth of classes, about 20 uh, or so classes in grade 6. So he takes care of our D.A.R.E. program, and then the kids have a health class, 7th and 8th grade, for a term, and that covers a whole host of health stuff, not just prevention. It's got everything from hygiene and mental health and nutrition and other things like that. So it's, it's part of our health class. And then coming around to you and the things that you do here at the high school, what does the health program look like at the high school? So at the high school, the students have one semester of health in their four years here. It happens sophomore year. So there's a semester of health class. And again, we are trying to cover all of the content of the 
uh, curriculum frameworks from the state. So we do a lot of things um, during that semester and try to get as much as we can in because that is really the only time that we see them at the high school is for one semester. Part of that curriculum is this really rich segment that you have that's devoted to prevention. Could you describe a little bit about that? Sure. And in particular, the program that you have where you bring in some outside folks. So we are coming at it at the high school level from a place of brain science and brain health first. So we um, spend some time learning about how the brain functions and then look at neurotransmitters. So they get a little bit of the science of brain. And so then when we get to prevention and addiction and things like that, we can talk about how substances can impact the brain. Um, so when we get to the the unit on substances, we do a little bit of content. So we kind of review some things on like what is a stimulant or a depressant or, you know, the different things that are out there and what they do to our body. Um, I also... I think it's really important to talk about addiction and what are the risks for addiction for kids, for anybody, really. And we also talk about treatment programs so they understand at least the basics about how to get help. So if they have somebody in their life that needs help or at some point they do, you know, what is a 12-step program versus an inpatient treatment program? What is medical-assisted treatment versus you know, counseling. So we do talk about different aspects of addiction. And then part of that is we have speakers come in who are currently in treatment at Heron Wellness, which is a facility in Massachusetts. And we have a connection to them from Lori McCarthy. So Lori is one of our community members. She is their executive director. And she has been really great in tying us to them in that she'll arrange for their clients to come up and talk to our kids in our health class. So it's a very intimate conversation. It's not a giant assembly program. I think it's more effective that way. So they'll come in and talk about why are they there and how they got to that place and their experiences with substances, when they started, why they started, the struggles they're having right now, or how many times maybe they've been through treatment prior to even getting to Heron Wellness. So it is a really eye-opening experience for the kids. They can ask questions, and I think it really shows the reality of it because oftentimes it's they, they will send us younger clients, and so they can um, kind of see somebody in their 20s who talks about living a very similar life to what our kids have lived. They grew up in a lovely town. They've had loving parents. They've had much success in academics or athletics or the arts. And that seemingly kind of charmed life where then they start to stumble maybe in their 20s and start to have difficulties. But that might have started in high school, really, in terms of experimenting with substances. So I think it just gives them perspective and puts a face to it, a face to addiction, um, that it's, you know, not all fun and games. It, they, they talk about, you know, the real stuff that goes on for them. And it's, I think it's a really great program. We're so lucky that they're willing to come and talk to our kids. So that's coming up for our, my current students are going to hear some clients in December. And I'm really looking forward to that. And that's a very innovative type of program. As from what I understand from talking with you, there are no other school systems doing something like this. Well, I know uh, not with Heron, for sure. We have that connection because of uh, Lori McCarthy, but um, I know that other schools will bring in uh, folks that are in treatment to kind of talk about their real story, but 
I just find that we have a closer connection because we, what we'll do is, um, uh, sur- I always survey the students after we have any speakers to say, did you find it valuable? Do you think we should have them return? And kind of give me a takeaway. What did you learn? So it gives us a sense of like, were they really dialed into that conversation? And I want to know if they think they're worthwhile speakers in whatever the topic is. And it's overwhelmingly yes, overwhelmingly that they want us to bring them in again for other classes. And when you read their takeaways, they get it. They really hear some of these deep messages. And then we send that to those clients so that they can read it because I want them to feel like they made a difference because they did Mm. and that they can help these kids. And so it's not just a, they show up, they give a talk and that's it. We kind of give them feedback. And then I feel like it is more of a relationship, but there definitely are schools out there that are having speakers come in and sharing their recovery experiences around the South Shore. At the high school in our curriculum, I also have our school resource officer, Officer Ford, uh, comes in and does a lesson with my students in our class. And we, and he's talking, he does talk about a multitude of things. It's sort of a legal angle where he's talking about what the laws are around possession and um, social host laws. But he also talks about consent and some other important things. But we do a survey with the kids the week before, and we ask them a few questions to see, to kind of test their knowledge about some of these topics, but also we give them space for open questions. And so he will answer, and it's anonymous. So the kids can ask things they're curious about. It also helps us get a little read on like, what are they talking about? What are they curious about? So it it's, it's, uh, can be as personal as possible. So he will go through all those questions in each class and, and answer them as well, and which also then brings up more conversation, which is really great. So that's how um, he and I collaborate, is that he comes into every single one of my classes and we talk about uh, you know all kinds of issues around substances, but also just the legal aspects as these kids are getting older. And now certain laws, you know, as they get older, the laws apply to them in different ways. And we want to make sure that they know that so they can make the best choices that they can. Um, so that's another, I think, really nice aspect of our, our health program here at the high school. So you've been teaching for over 20 years, and you've seen a lot of kids come through the school mm-hmm. system. What are some of the takeaways from what you've witnessed in school and then their life outside of school, after school, whether it's college, post-college, their, their post-high school life? What are some of the challenges that you've seen? One of the things that I pay attention to is this is a beautiful community. It's beautiful here. Students have incredible opportunities with the school system and the surrounding community to explore their passions, to uh, excel in different ways. And so they, they can do really well. And then it's difficult. You know, life is difficult for all of us. And when they get out into the world, I want them to be okay if they don't shine at everything. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure for the kids here to be the best at every single thing they do. And if they don't, I think perhaps some of them start to doubt themselves. So I think giving kids permission to fail is an important thing now, even now. It's okay to fail. It's okay to not make the team. It's okay to, you know, change your mind about what you want to spend your time doing and let kids do that so that when they're 22 and on their own or somewhere 
without as many support systems maybe, things don't go their way, that they are able to pick themselves back up and move on. It's just an important thing to learn to be resilient. And it's, I think there's tough pressure in this community because everything is so nice, you know? And to think like bad things happen, they happen. And that's okay. And we learn from those and we move on. Yeah, so failure could be a, a great teacher and that with opportunity and all this community has to offer, it can, a student can feel pressured to just do it all. And they uh, really should feel like they don't have to or to just uh, learn from a lesson and be okay with that. We all fail. Are there any particular challenges that you see students having after leaving Hingham, after graduating from high school, potentially even graduating from college? Are there particular substance use issues that you've detected in the the 20 plus years that you've been teaching? Um, I, you know, I don't know exactly. So the, you know, when I hear about our students struggling in their 20s, I don't always know all the details. I do know that the substances of choice here, at least to start, are alcohol. And so I think if kids go off to school or when they're in an, you know, they're living on their own in their 20s, that it's still first uh, alcohol and marijuana. I do know that we've had students who have then progressed to other drugs. We've had uh, tragedies with students and, you know, former students who are in their 20s, um, you know, who went into harder drugs and, and struggled with those. So, you know, sometimes I don't know all the details, but essentially those are the things that it's, it's this, honestly, that's where most people start is alcohol, uh, as young people, and then they can progress to other substances. But that is still, I think the biggest issue, even with our graduates as they move through, whether it's college or just living independently, um, that's what they're struggling with the most. Do you have a personal connection to this topic? I do. I mean, I, as I think almost everybody can probably find in their circle of friends or family that they know somebody with addiction. So I uh, have family members with uh, addiction, and I certainly know friends that have struggled. And so, yes, I mean, uh, and, and as I said, I think probably most people can find somebody in their circle Absolutely. that they've had you know, that have struggled with addiction, whether it's a family member, whether it's their friend or it's their friend's parent or something. We can all relate to this topic. I think understanding the liability, not just for themselves, but also for their parents or their friend's parents. You know, there's a lot of, as you have already alluded to, there's a lot of alcohol Mm -hmm. consumption, uh, uh, definitely some issues with alcohol use in this community with our young people. Binge drinking is huge. Um, drinking in people's basements, in people's homes, whether the parents know about it or don't know about it. Um, those are the two biggest issues that, that we see from the youth risk behavior survey that you conduct. Um, so I think you know kids get to a certain age where they can understand that their actions don't just affect themselves and their close circle, but there's a ripple effect. Right. And there are other people... Um, that can be impacted by their choices. And that definitely comes into play with their Mm decision-making. And we do specifically talk about the social host law with them because we want to make sure that they are fully understanding 
the ramifications of that. Because as you said, in our surveys that we've done, we know that kids are drinking in homes where there's adults present who know there's drinking happening. So it's, it's being done with some adult knowledge in some households. And so we want to make it really clear that that is against the law and um, dangerous on many levels. And so, you know, it's a way to cover that topic with the kid, from the kid angle, instead of just trying to say to the families in town, you know, it's not a good idea to do that. So and we want to know from the kid, that the kids know that that's not something that should be happening. Have you heard either directly from the kids or sort of anecdotally why that happens, why these parents are engaged in that kind of behavior. We all want our kids to be safe, so it's right. not as though people are looking to do unsafe things with their with their kids. What is the thought process behind that? I think, I, I mean, I don't know for sure. They don't really say that explicitly to me, but, you know, I do think there's that train of thought that, well, they all are going to do it, which I don't buy into. I don't think all kids are going to drink. And that if they're all going to do it, it's better for them to do it in our house where we can keep an eye on them because that's safer. Because if we don't, they're going to be someplace I don't know. You know, but there's a whole host of issues with that. Because when you're in somebody's home and they're saying it's okay, you're condoning it and you're saying it's okay. And it's not. When people start drinking or using substances early in their teens, they are far more likely to become addicted. And so they might say, okay, I'm doing this to keep them safe because they're not going to drive off the road. Okay, they won't do that. But in a few years, are we looking for rehab for them because they're you know, having an addiction issue? There's other issues. It's not just about keeping them off the road when they drink or it sends a message to kids that it's okay or it's celebrated instead of saying, like, this is not healthy, it's not good for your body, and I'm not going to let you do it. So I'm not sure the entire train of thought or mentality about allow someone allowing that in their house, but, you know, there's always the circumstance where somebody can fall down a flight of stairs. They can drown in the backyard pool. They could do other things. So driving isn't the only issue. So letting somebody drink in your house or a group of kids drink in the house doesn't mean you're protecting them from everything. In fact, there's still lots of other risks, unfortunately. So you mentioned that at the start of your health class with the 10th graders, you talk about physiology, in particular brain development. What are some of the sort of salient points? What are some of those tidbits that you think are really critical in understanding how the brain operates, how the brain develops during your teen years, and the impact that substances can have on that? Sure. Really, the key issue that we like to emphasize is about the development of the frontal lobe. So that doesn't fully develop and finish developing until somebody's in their early 20s, about 24 years old. And so because of that, that is that is one of the reasons why kids don't always make the best decisions, because it's part of the part, the brain that is involved in decision making. So when people say like, why are kids doing that crazy thing? That's part of it is their brain is not fully developed yet, their, their, their frontal lobe. And um, if people use substances, because it's not fully developed, substances are going to impact the development and growth of that part of the brain. So that's why we want to keep people from using substances at least until after the, in their early 20s. Because it's going to determine whether that 
frontal lobe develops properly. So that's one of the big things I like to talk to them about. Pretty simple. Frontal lobe, it's not done developing. Don't do anything to harm it until, you know, at least it wait as long as possible. Then we do talk a little bit about neurotransmitters and this sort of dopamine feedback loop. So that dopamine gets released as a reward. It makes people feel good. It's part of our reward system. And so that's why for some people, when they use substances, it causes that rush of dopamine. The person feels good. And that's why people want to do something again, whether it's alcohol or whether it's heroin or whether it's chocolate or something like that is those things those neurotransmitters, the chemicals are involved in how we feel and that substances can manipulate those neurotransmitters to make us feel good. And, and that could be dangerous for people. So basically, if, if they're neurotransmitters, they get hijacked. Essentially, it's trying to say to the kids, you know, don't put anything on board that's going to hijack your brain and hijack those neurotransmitters. It's a really complicated system. Our, our body is amazing and our brains are amazing. And so substances are going to interfere with the normal functioning of our brain, of our neurotransmitters, which control mood, and then um, just our decision-making. Which means that youth substance use in particular is very risky. Um, and like you said, kids by design are going to engage in risky behavior. You administer a survey called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey that's an incredibly useful tool in assessing that level of risk that kids engage in, and we at Hingham Cares rely upon it to get a handle on the pulse of what kids are struggling with the most and to track any changes over time in substance use trends. Could you describe for our listeners what the Youth Risk Behavior Survey is, what its content is, how often it's administered, what it's, use, uh, what it's used for? Sure. So uh, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey is actually a tool from the Centers for Disease Control. So it's been around for decades. And um, so it's done on a national level. It's also done on the state level. So there's a Massachusetts Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And then districts um, decide whether they want to implement it or not. And so we've been doing it um, for as long as I've been here. And we administer it to grades 9 and 11 students every year. And it has a whole host of questions. So it's all types of risk behavior. So it's everything from safety concerns, fighting and bullying, to using substances, alcohol, drugs, prescription drugs. It's, it asks questions about stress and about sleep and about diet. So it's, it's really trying to pick up the gamut of different things that we are concerned about for our students. And uh, we do it every, so we do it every year um, to grades 9 and 11, and actually grades 7 as well. And so we can then compare cohort groups of it, right? So we can, if we survey grade 9, two years later, those kids are 11th graders, and we're seeing the same, you know, group of kids. The different ways that we use the Youth Risk Behavior Survey is, as you said, just to sort of get a handle on um, maybe what's happening or concerns, to look at trends. So it's not really a tool that's going to indicate like program effectiveness per se. It's just one of many tools that we can look at to say, what's going on with our kids? Where should we spend our time? So we don't have a lot of time uh, to, to spend in health class or, you know, and obviously kids get health topics in other classes as well, science and criminal justice and other things like that. But it helps us to focus our time on 
what we want to teach in a class or what kind of programs we might bring in from the outside. So the PTO often will say, well, let's work together and we'll bring in a speaker about this topic. So it, it's part of a multi-use tool, I guess. And mm -hmm. so we use it with a lot of other things. So for example, we might look at a question about, have you ever vaped? We also would compare that to like, what is our discipline data? And what is our community um, indicators too. So you never use the youth risk behavior survey on its own. You're typically looking at it as do the results line up with what we're seeing out in the community, either with like police encounters or with our discipline data at the high school. And are they, are they sort of lining up? So it, it's just one of many things that we use to look at what of our kids are at risk for. So when we look at the results of the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, there's a noticeable uptick between 9th grade and 11th grade in substance use. And it's really across the board, even mm -hmm. though there's not a huge issue with certain types of substances, definitely those numbers increase between 9th and 11th grade. Yep. What do you attribute that to? Their license. So they have freedom. You know, once they get their license, they have freedom like they've never had before. And so it's just a matter of they can do more things on their own. They can, they can drive themselves to their friend's house. And so I think it's just a matter of, and like you said, we see that with literally everything. That's just a natural progression is that as somebody gets older, they are more likely to engage in, in any other risk behavior too. So other drugs, sexual contact, all of it. But I think that's really what it boils down to is the, the level of independence and freedom that they have as an 11th grader is vastly different than ninth grade. And so it just gives them more opportunity and space to, you know, experiment with things or, you know, try different things. So I think it's just that growth period of reaching more of an independent life. And there's pros and cons to that. So we've seen that for decades. And when you look at risk data, it just goes up and up and up every year. You know, it goes up from grade nine to grade 10 to grade 11. And then from 12 to like, age 22. You know, it's just part of being free and independent. So I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot other than keeping the conversation open so kids can always talk and say, this is what's going on now. You know, now that I can go out on my own or do things on my own, this is a new situation that's cropped up. What do I do? You know, so just sort of maybe keeping that conversation open. But I think you've got to let them grow up and be independent. Since you've been administering this survey for a number of years, you can observe certain trends over time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've detected is that nicotine use has been on the decline. And that, I believe, is a result of a really a, a, a significant campaign against cigarette smoking and nicotine use. That's not just in the health programming at the high school. Right. Um, you know, it's advertising. It's uh, a real nationwide effort mm -hmm. against it um, to prevent kids from taking it up as a habit and experiencing the long-term effects of what we know to be a dangerous substance. Conversely, we're seeing that now that marijuana has been legalized, there's less of a perception of harm of mm -hmm. marijuana. So those numbers are going down. And youth numbers are going up. What other trends are you seeing? Are you seeing trends in alcohol use? Are you seeing trends in marijuana use? Are there certain things that are staying the same, certain things that you're noticing are, 
are different over time? Sure. I, I, as you said, the smoking has gone way down. You know, and that took decades of campaigns and education to get that down. And just as it was getting down to a really promising level, um, then vape showed up. And so what we're seeing is vaping at levels where smoking was. And so that is nicotine. You know, kids are typically vaping nicotine and becoming addicted to it. So unfortunately, the nicotine isn't gone. It's just the vehicle is different. So we are seeing um, those numbers are higher. Um, they, I think, I'd like to think they've peaked. I think there was a couple year period of vaping where it was really on the upswing. And I think pretty quickly students realized it was addictive, where they at first, I think, thought it was just fun or I don't know. Um, so we're seeing those numbers start to creep down and that I hope that continues to go down because the, you know, the smoking has stayed low, you know, so that I don't think that will ever go back up the way it was, uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But the vaping thing, I think has had a pretty quick rebuke where suddenly they stopped selling the flavored kinds. Like we pretty quickly acted in, in this state anyway, to, to uh, kind of squash that. And I'm hoping that sort of shows in a slow decline of vaping. So it goes out of fashion. I think it was sort of looked at as uh, um, a trend, but hopefully we'll see that go down. The other, unfortunately, certain things like alcohol, we'll see slight ups and downs, but unfortunately not a like progression of lowering of those numbers. And so we're seeing again, like it might go up for a couple years and then back down a little bit and then back up. So it's those substances, again, that we know are issues in our community that just kind of stay at that level, alcohol primarily. And like you said, we've seen marijuana go up a bit, but honestly not as much as I thought it would when they changed the laws around it. I guess that's promising that it didn't just completely flip the switch and skyrocket, but um, it's still troubling still because obviously there's harmful impacts of that. So, you know, kind of a steady, in the sense of a trend, kind of a steady level still of alcohol and marijuana, a, a bit of an increase in, uh, in vaping, a bit increased, and then, you know, the smoking is, I think, is passe now. So hopefully we won't <laughs> see too much of that happening uh, anymore. What we see is what sort of the most communities see and the nation sees, which is, you know, alcohol is, is the number one drug of choice for our country. You know, that is the, the primary substance first. So we're just kind of hanging there with the rest of, of the state and the country in terms of what our issues are, I think. What suggestions would you have to parents when it comes to substance use? And you mentioned alcohol and marijuana specifically. What particular pieces of advice would you have to parents when it comes to those two substances? Well, one, you're their biggest role model. And so I think, like you said, alcohol is so socially acceptable. It's so part of culture and the way people talk about things. So for example, um, you know, when somebody's having a rough day and they come home and say, I have, boy, I've had a rough day. I just need a glass of wine. And so when kids hear that, over and over again, it says to them, I can't manage my stressors or my bad days without wine. Or, you know, I'm just using that as an example. And, and, and of course, adults can drink and, you know, do what they 
do. But I think that sort of subtle messages, not so subtle all the time, tells kids like that's how I manage rough times is with um, alcohol or marijuana. I'm just going to use that to relax. Or I'm going to use that to deal with stress. I'm going to use that to deal with difficulty. And I think we need to teach kids to find ways to manage stress and difficulty in healthy ways. Instead of saying that, saying, you know what? I've had a really hard day. I am so stressed out. I'm going to go take a walk around the block and get some exercise and some fresh air. And it shows an alternative way to manage hard times without substances. So I think parents are incredible role models and and I want them to take advantage of that. <laughs> so it's really about adults making healthy choices as well. Yeah. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah, just showing them how to navigate things without substances so they see that there are alternatives. So I think that's, you know, one of my biggest pieces of advice would be that is just never forget that you are their first role model. They see you every single day and they're listening. I think my other piece of advice is to be very open and honest with your kids about family history of addiction. And I think we're finally starting to see the stigma go away. Um, It's getting better, that's for sure. In that, you know, for a long time, people wouldn't admit that or talk about it, that their, you know, uncle was an, an, uh, had alcoholism or three of the family members, you know, going back from a grandparent and an uncle and an Kids need to know that. There's such a strong link between family history and risk of addiction that it's it needs to be talked about so that kids, as, again, they're navigating all these other things and choices and should I drink on Saturday night when I'm with this group of kids that are all drinking, they need that information to say, I have a family history, and it's more even, even more dangerous for me to start using substances. So, And that can also be for them a refusal skill and say, listen, you know what, guys, I'm not going to do that tonight because I really, I have a family history, and I don't, I don't want to see that happen to me. So I think we need to get over being ashamed or keep that quiet about our family's addiction history. I understand that you you see the kids in 10th grade Mm -hmm. and then they don't have health education in 11th or 12th. Right. If you had the opportunity to provide them with one piece of advice that you would repeat in 11th grade and repeat in 12th grade, something that you would want them to take with them from the 10th grade class and, you know, if you hypothetically had an 11th grade class and a 12th grade class, what would that piece of advice be for kids? Um, I think it would be twofold in terms of really searching themselves to say why. Why, do, why would I need to do anything? Why can't I just be myself? And so maybe their course of action is you know, exploring your passions, exploring what's important to you, setting goals for yourself so that you have a way to see past that, so that you have things to look forward to. And the other part, again, goes back to what I said earlier, is wait. If you could just wait. Your brain's not fully developed. The odds are the longer you can wait to use a substance, the better the chances that you're not going to become addicted. So when you've got 14, 15, 16-year-olds, using a substance, their chances of becoming an addict down the road are much, much higher. So wait. Just, you know, love yourself enough to wait. 
And that could be another refusal skill. Right. Not trying it tonight. Yeah. I'm going to wait. Yep. So you do really great work in the 10th grade health class, bringing in these outside speakers, having presentations, teaching kids about brain development. But of course, then they go out into the community. How can we as Hingham Cares, where our mission is to prevent youth substance use, how can we augment the work that you're doing in the classroom? Well, I think what you've been doing lately is really great in setting up some really healthy activities for kids to get involved in on the weekends. And I've loved seeing those come down, you know, kind of down the pike. So you've got the fitness class, I think, coming up this month and the pottery class next month. So we're promoting that in class to get kids to just get out and explore and do things fun and healthy with their friends. Um, I think... Much of the same is just this, the messaging of, um, you know, parents working together and helping them, I think, providing them with some support or some speakers or workshops, I think, have been done in the past about how to talk to your kids, I think would be really, really helpful because it's hard. It's hard. And so supporting, I think, our families and and in giving kids healthy opportunities to do things. I think those are great uh, ways to augment what's going on here at the school. We're also hoping that they see that it isn't just this small group of people who are putting activities out there, but there are businesses and there are other entities in town that are concerned about their futures. These Mm -hmm. kids have bright futures ahead of them. We all want to be supporting them and pursuing their hopes and dreams. So For them to be able to see that mass movement and open door studios and main street pottery Mm -hmm. are on board with providing them at no cost, a really cool, fun, alternative activity. Hopefully that resonates with them as well. Yeah. It shows them that we value them, you Mm -hmm. know, that the community values that. I think teenagers, you know, they'll say they don't feel heard or they'll complain that they're in that in-between stage of like, they're not really little kids anymore. Yet they're not adults, and so they don't feel like they have a full voice. And so I think when community says, we do value you, and we want to do this program just for you, I think that's what's nice about those. It's just for teens, right? those programs that you're putting together. It says, like, okay, they actually value me, and that's, Absolutely. that's great. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This has been a really insightful conversation. We appreciate everything that you're doing with the youth in oh, Hingham. Thank you. And in particular to the prevention programming that you bring in, that you expose them to. Thank you. You have been listening to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Root, and I hope that you will join us again. Thank you. For more info or to get involved, go to hinghamcares.org.